A forensic accountant is like if Sherlock Holmes carried a calculator instead of a magnifying glass or Dirty Harry had a spreadsheet instead of a 44 Magnum. They use accounting and auditing and investigative skills to analyze the finances of people and businesses. Tracy Conan has spent more than 25 years investigating fraud, financial statement fraud, investment fraud, and insurance fraud. She's even handled divorce fraud. Sounds so romantic, doesn't it? She's personally completed more than 500 forensic accounting engagements. She's been an expert witness in numerous cases and testified more than 80 times. As the author of three books about fraud and embezzlement and the holder of multiple undergraduate and graduate degrees, Tracy is the perfect person to talk to about this fascinating topic. If you've ever fudged your numbers, you better hope Tracy Conan is busy doing something else because she'll see your numeric inconsistencies clearer than a chalk outline at a murder scene. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Tracy Conan, you might wonder, why are we the Happy Retirees Show and the retire sooner podcast interviewing someone that digs into forensic accounting and whether your spouse is cheating on you from a money perspective. And it's because we talk about marriage and how it impacts our retirement happiness. And it's a big topic here. And if somebody is hiding money, shuffling it around, I want our audience to be able to figure that out. Well, and I think it's important to talk about the topic of divorce as it relates to retirement, because when people are getting close to retirement or are in retirement and there is a divorce, it can really upend them financially. You know, everyone's standard of living goes down after divorce. Um, but if retirement is imminent or you're already in retirement, it can really have some damaging effects on you. Well, unless you're a billionaire, right? So if you split a billion in two, you're still pretty good. Each side has right. a half a 500 million, but that's not, that's not 99.9% .9 of America. So you're right. When you get into a divorce, pretty much always standard of living goes down. Well, and how about situations like this where uh, we've been married for 20 years, you know, retirement is a little ways off yet, but uh, over that 20 years, my spouse has been working and putting a bunch of money into our 401k account. And now that we're getting divorced, we're going to have to split that in half, but that'll probably be okay. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, work on my budget a little bit, but I'll still be okay. And then we go to split the 401k and it doesn't exist because the spouse cashed it out to gamble it all away. All right. That's really... Wow. I mean, we should go to a commercial break and say, we'll be back with Tracy Conan. And where did the money go? And where did it go? What form of gambling was it lost to when the Retire Sooner podcast returns? But I don't think we actually have a commercial right now. So we're going to go right into it. First of all, I, ha I can tell you that I have seen a little bit of this, even in my, let's call it happy retiree practice. So we have almost 4,000 clients. I've seen a lot of different things over the years. And most of the time, the millionaire next door type person doesn't get into that crap, if you will. 
And the reason they end up with a million or two or $3 million is they're pretty darn good about saving and not fettering money away. But I do, I do see families that have had some, somebody had an addiction problem or their kids had an addiction problem or there was a gambling problem. And, and I've seen money go away pretty quickly, but I haven't seen from our side of being an advisor. And this is why I want to hear your examples or stories about this is that if it's just you and your spouse, uh, it's a, it seems like it'd be a lot easier to play funny money here and have money go missing. So what was this, what happened here in this gambling story? Well, I, it's, it's a generic story, but I have seen it. I, I had been involved in divorces with gambling. Uh, some of the cases, a, a more recent case, the wife knew that there was a gambling problem, uh, and was still a little bit surprised at what was going on with the 401k. But I have been involved in other cases multiple times where it's just very simply a you know, hidden gambling problem. And the 401k had either not nearly as much as they thought in it or had been completely drained altogether, which is why one of the things that I'm a big advocate of is you know, the spouse who's not in control of the money staying informed about what's going on, showing them, here's what you would look for to find out if the 401k was cashed out in part or in whole. I'm going to show you on a tax return where to look to see if that was happening, right? All right, so first of all, let me let me back up for just a minute here and explain forensic accounting, first of all. Oh, I thought you were going to explain forensic accounting. Didn't sound like a question. The, no, I, I, I would be terrible at explaining this. I, I would like you to explain. What is, what is forensic accounting? And you're a CPA, but what do you, as a forensic CPA or somebody that specializes in, in this, what are you doing? Finding money. So I am a fraud investigator and I find money. It is very often when corporate executives are stealing money, um, you know, doing funny money with the company's books and records, or it may be in divorce cases where someone is trying to find out where has our money gone, or there may be trying to find out how much are we making as a family. I don't know where all of our sources of income are. Now, great problem to have, right? There's extra money that you didn't know was coming in. <laughs> and um, Or cases uh, just where companies are fighting over money, maybe a contract gone bad, and I'll come in and figure out how much money was lost because of that contract gone bad, and I'll testify in court. So that kind of all falls under that umbrella of forensic accounting, but the easiest way to describe it to people is I just say, I figure out where the money went. Okay, so let's just think about the, from a family perspective, a husband and wife, and and I can see this maybe, it seems even more complicated in a company, but it seems like you would, by the time you get brought in, you kind of have the keys to be able to go figure it out, right? You're allowed to go in, they probably give you the keys to the accounts and you get to go look forensically. But it seems a little more complicated maybe for a husband and wife, particularly if you've just started a divorce or are the rule, I don't even know the rules on this. Is it, do you pretty quickly, let's say you've got a spouse that's kind of hiding something. How quickly can the spouse that you're representing get it so that you can go look? It's pretty quick because uh, the divorce process itself allows for uh, documents to be subpoenaed. So bank records can be gotten in that fashion. Investment records can be gotten in that fashion, tax returns, et cetera. What I tell my clients is that they should get whatever documents they have legal access to on their own immediately. So if your name is on the bank account and you've got online banking access, go download everything immediately, just in case 
Your spouse is sneaky and takes you off that bank account once the divorce is filed. So gather what you can. And for what you don't have legal access to, very simple process of your attorney preparing a subpoena, sending that off to the bank, and the bank is legally required to give us the records. Well, what if you don't even know what banks to ask? That's an interesting concept. There is, um, of course, you probably have an idea of where your bank account is, even if you don't know a lot of information about it. So we start there. But then when I get into my investigation, typically there are clues to other banks that may exist. Now, I do ask my client, think about banks that your spouse ever talked about, or, or can you remember, we applied for a mortgage from this bank and we didn't take that mortgage, but maybe there's a relationship there. So we can send subpoenas strategically if we f- have some information in hand that suggests there could be an account at that bank. Mm, do you remember your husband flying back and forth to Switzerland? You know, people think about that kind of stuff. I get asked all the time about, you know, hiding money overseas. And quite frankly, unless you're wealthy, that's probably not a concern. There's a lot that goes into that Swiss bank account. And if you're kind of the average Joe, it's just not going to happen. So it's usually not a concern. And also, if you do have an account um, that is secretly overseas, we usually will find some sort of clues to that. And so when you're talking about finding these hidden bank accounts, when I am going through all these bank records, sometimes I find clues. You know, I'll find a transfer to a bank that you never knew you did business with before. And there's usually some sort of paper trail. So we can find it. So once you start to get into the documents, by the way, do you do this, Tracy, through statements or do you are you going online and actually looking through? Is it how do you typically do it's, it? It's really with the statements Mm -hmm. and we can get them either paper or digital format. It doesn't matter, but I'm taking those statements, getting all the transactions off the statements into a database and, and, you know, looking line by line. How often are you brought into a case where somebody, maybe the spouse thinks that there's some sort of money movement and there isn't, or is it super prevalent that it happens like all the time? By the time someone gets to me, they're pretty certain that something has gone wrong. So Mm. my client base really isn't a good litmus test for society as a whole. I will tell you, though, there are cases that I have worked on where I have gone through everything and in the end said it's all accounted for. And I find nothing that gives me pause. Now, I can't give them a 100% guarantee that nothing is wrong, but I can say, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. And in my experience, what I've seen here is, is very normal and I haven't found any missing money. All right. So then we think about what are the, maybe the red flags. If you're going through a divorce and you're, you start to see maybe what is a red flag that you would, you would start suspecting what kind of behavior would we be saying, wait a minute, maybe there's Maybe there's more money to be split up. I would look for things like a change in behavior. So a big change. Maybe uh, the person becomes more controlling over the money or controlling over how you spend, controlling access to information about the finances. Those are usually pretty good tip-offs when they're becoming more secretive about the money or secretive of their whereabouts or the phone. I like to say, if you have the spouse who always came in the house at the end of the workday and set their phone on the kitchen counter 
and you went about your business and had dinner and, and did your watch a TV program at night and all those kinds of things. And the phone sat there on the counter. And then all of a sudden one day your spouse started coming home from work and that phone never left his or her side, even when mm. they went to the bathroom and all those things, right? That kind of change in behavior um, would make me suspicious that potentially there's an affair. Affairs are expensive. The spending has to be hidden. All of those things make it really ripe for um, there to be something funny going on with the money. So part of this, so the behavior can not only identify an affair, but you could also do it in reverse where you're seeing, well, where's all this spending going that, that can then identify that there was also an affair? Have you, have, has it worked that way as well? Have you ever figured out that there was an affair? For sure. Yeah, we've, we've seen it go both ways. Absolutely. And it's heartbreaking for my clients, right? It's heartbreaking for me to have to tell them, here's what I'm seeing. But in, uh, I think most cases, they've already had suspicions and this is really just confirming it. Yeah. So what about with social media? Do you, how much, do you use social media as well to figure this stuff out? We do use social media. Um, not as often as, as maybe we'd like, uh, because, I think social media is really something that exposes things about relationships. It doesn't always expose things about the money, except for one really good case that I do call the Instagram investigation. Oh, come on. Tell, you got to tell me. It's this. true. It's true. Okay. I had a client, um, she and her husband separated and he got a young girlfriend uh, there was not a suspicion that he was dating this woman during their marriage, but the wife was upset about this girlfriend. And she said, you know, he's spending all this money on her and that money is half mine. And she wasn't wrong. It was half oh, hers. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait, I thought that they had already been divorced. No, they were just separated. They weren't yet divorced. Separated, so, but not yes. divorced. And then online, the, 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 the husband you're saying was posting pictures with his new girlfriend while separated. Well... He wasn't posting anything. The girlfriend was posting things, but she wasn't posting pictures with him. So, so they were kind of smart about it. No pictures of them online together. But, but the wife, is, the girlfriend wasn't a secret. The wife knew about the girlfriend. What she was upset about was all the money that was going out the door for this girlfriend, leasing a car, paying for an apartment, expensive handbags and jewelry and dinners out and all these things. But he denied that any of this was for her. We tried to find out, does she have a credit card on your account? Because we're looking at some of these spending patterns and it looks like a woman is doing some shopping. He denied that she had a credit card on his account. The credit card company denied that she had a credit card on his account. And then one day I was looking at the girlfriend's Instagram account and realizing that what she liked to do was take pictures on her shopping trips here I am standing outside the, you know, Fendi store with a handbag, tag the store. So I've got the date, the store. And I went and looked at the credit card statement and there you go. There's Fendi. And then right after that, she went to fancy lunch at a restaurant, tag the restaurant picture of herself. I look at the credit card statement. There's the restaurant. It was great. <laughs> it was I mean, when, when all was said and done, I had $400,000 of spending. Holy. So was this a really, really wealthy client as well? It was. Or, okay. It, there was a, there was a good deal of wealth there. Yeah. $400,000 on a girlfriend. And, and it's funny here I am, we're, we're like looking at these stories as almost this, this mystery, or we're watching this as a Netflix special and it's exciting, 
but in your world, it's also it's kind of sad, right? You're telling your client that, yeah, actually, you've got these these their affairs. This is money going to somebody else. But in this particular case, Tracy, that was then reaccounted for. I, I I suspect in when they ultimately were divorced. That's right. So half of that was the wife's money, really. $200,000 of that had to be credited back to her. And certainly that's a negotiation point when they're trying to settle everything. And I suppose, you know, nobody's going to cry too much about my client who is going to get millions of dollars coming out of this divorce. But as far as I'm concerned, half of that was hers. And she, you know, until they were divorced and and divvying up the money, um, it's marital property. Full disclosure, I am affiliated with Capital Investment Advisors, which is a full service and a fee-only financial planning and investment management firm in Atlanta and Denver and Tampa and Phoenix or wherever you are. And if you'd like to take your retirement planning or retire sooner journey to the next level, Capital Investment Advisors would love to help. You can find our team and schedule a time to chat right at yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R wealth.com. So you have husband and wife. We've already talked about a separation phase, which is obviously different than the, I guess, a divorce phase when it's, you're getting a, well, when you're getting a divorce, that in itself could take a good, what, year or two years easily? Sometimes three years, four years, depending on how contentious it is. Sure. So the question then would be, when do you start confronting your spouse on these issues? Is it, I guess, would it be during during the separation while you've already, once you've already gotten attorneys involved and you, you're already head to head and it's a divorce? When do you bring it up? It's really situationally specific. What I do suggest to people is that they gather information Again, going back to getting those bank statements and credit card statements, income tax returns, if you have legal access to those, get copies for yourself, secure them so they can't disappear, and then start asking questions. Of course, I suggest uh, asking the questions in as non-confrontational of a way as possible. That's not always possible. I, the, you know, By the time there are all of these suspicions, I think there probably is a uh, pretty good chance that things are argumentative and contentious, right? What would be a, a typical example? And you've, again, you said you're not typically brought in until there's already kind of a high suspicion here, but what would be a typical example of what one of the spouses would do? Is it, Hey, I've got you know $3 million, but I want to put up a million over somewhere. Or is it, is it less than that? What, or what is your typical trying to, either hide or maybe what about maybe spending on other things that maybe only benefit one party, if you will, you see what I'm saying? What I typically see is people, uh, siphoning off money little by little. Okay. Oh, so okay. De- depending on your level of wealth, it might be the $500 withdrawal from the ATM repeatedly that sort of disappears, or it might be a five dollars or $10,000 cash withdrawal from the bank account that disappears into thin air, things like that. Over time, someone building up you know, a stash of money off to the side is what I see most commonly. And what are some of the typical timeframes? Is that saying that the spouse that's doing that is just preparing for this? And how long do they do that for? 
What I see is often that that goes on for a year or two. I typically, in my investigations, go back three to five years, depending on the circumstances. I would say three is probably most common. It's long enough for us to get a history of what's been going on, but not so long that it bankrupts my client in trying to pay the fees for the work. So three years is pretty typical. And I think usually when I'm looking at these cases, what we see is going back the first year back or second, that's kind of where it starts when you get back to three years. Not as usual to see it going back that far. Certainly, there are cases where this has been a longstanding thing in a marriage where someone's been salting away money for 10 or 20 years. But many of the cases, it is a much more recent issue. Well, so wait, you have seen some of these that have gone on that long, over 10 years? Absolutely. We can see um, one of the difficulties is that banks only keep records for seven years. So it's hard to go back beyond that unless a client has been keeping their own records. You know, there are people who keep copies of bank statements for 10 or 15 years. Yes. So that's really helpful in these cases where we think the problem may go further back. And the way that we approach it is I will start with that three to five year period. And if we see that this kind of behavior with the money goes all the way back, then we might go back five more years and see what we find and just kind of keep working our way back until we decide that it's no longer worth it to keep going. And is the intent though pretty, is it just the same intent for everybody? It's just, Hey, once we get divorced, if this money is, is in some other place then I don't have to split it. Is that, is that pretty much the only intent? Right. Absolutely. I, I think that's the only intent. Um, I, I suppose there are the cases, well, of course, cases where someone has the affair or the addiction, the secret spending that they don't want to disclose, of course, would be the other big reason why. So it's either let's get a pile of money that I get to keep all for myself, or we've had a pattern of secret spending. Yeah. Okay. So how often has that shown up? And is that pretty easy to figure out if you've got some sort of gambling problem or you've probably, maybe let's walk through some of those gambling or maybe, maybe addiction problems as well. Those kinds of things. The other type of thing that I see is the secret credit card. Um, You know, I, I like to say maybe, you know, in many families, there's one main bank account and there's one main credit card. So let's say yep. you've got your credit card, Citibank, and you as the spouse who's not in control of money, maybe see a credit card statement every so often or, or see a bank statement every so often. You see that Citibank is being paid. Yes, you know that's our credit card and, and that looks normal to you. doesn't raise any red flags. What you might not have realized is Citibank might be paid twice every month, but you wouldn't pay attention to that. Why might they be paid twice every month? Because there might be a second credit card at Citibank that's being paid that your spouse said, well... If I have another card at Citibank, my spouse won't get suspicious when they see Citibank is being paid. There's so many ways to do it, Wes. Ooh, okay. Give us another way for, give us another way to to do this. Oh, what can I think of that's a good one? Um, You know, it's so simple. We're we're informing spouses that are trying to do this in a very sneaky way. Are we allowed to do this here on the show? (laughs) Well, that's just it. You know, sometimes people want to hear about things like this and it's like, please don't go use, don't reverse engineer me to, to use it against your spouse and try to hide money. Um, let's see, we've talked about the withdrawals, right? And we've talked about the secret bank account. We've talked about the second credit card, um, the ATM withdrawals. So when I ask people why you never used the ATM before, but now you've started going there regularly a couple times a week, what's going yeah. on? 
response is, is typically, oh, I was using that to put gas in the car or buy groceries. And I'm saying, but I still see you using the debit card for gas and groceries. So where did the cash really go? And, and again, that's typically, that would be cash that people that just end up opening some other bank account and putting it in there. Either that or the secret spending, or even, I mean, I, I have been involved in cases where there's been a duffel bag with piles of cash in it hidden somewhere. Yes. Wow. So yeah. So somebody act, just keeping the physical cash. Right. Because there's no paper trail there. Um, it's there, There's no risk. There's almost no risk of us finding that duffel bag, right? But you so, did. You guys found the duffel bag. How'd you well, find it? Fair enough. I, I don't know how I found it. I, I okay. don't recall. <laughs> but And it's not only husbands that do this. Let us be clear. So, um, yeah, you know, let's turn the tables here. What, what have you seen that, I don't know why we always say that it's men that do this, but from a wife perspective, or we, is it pretty much the same? Is it is it pretty similar patterns? It's a lot of similar patterns, but let's flip this a little bit to a positive. So we're going to talk about flipping the gender roles, and we're also going to flip it a little bit to a more positive thing, because right now I, I feel like Oprah, you have fraud and okay, you have yeah. fraud, right? So I uh, last year worked on a case. My client was the husband, and he had been a stay-at-home dad for about 15 years. His wife was a physician, and she made anywhere from a million to $2 million a year, depending on what her caseload was and what her bonus structure was. They were getting divorced, and she said, thank you very much. I am going to pay you $2,000 a month for the next two years for support spousal support, and then you're going to be done and you're going to go away. And he said, well, I don't think that sounds quite fair. We've been married for 15 years. I gave up my career to raise our children and you're making a million to $2 million a year. I think I probably deserve more support than that, than $2,000 a month and for a longer period. And she said, oh, no, you don't. You know why? Because you have been hiding a bunch of money. So go live off of that. And he said, hiding money, what are you talking about? She said, well, we don't really have a whole lot in any investment accounts or bank accounts right now. You certainly must be hiding money. He said, well, no, I wasn't hiding money. What I was doing, remember when you wanted that house two states over and I went and we went and bought that house. And then a couple years later, you changed your mind and didn't want it. And we sold it for a loss. And then we did that again. And he said, our lifestyle has eaten up all our money. I was hired to come in to do two things, to prove the negative, that he wasn't hiding money. <laughs> Whoa. And to help make his case for what her income was so that he could go in front of a judge and ask for proper spousal support. Okay. So you were there to prove that because they didn't. So you're telling, okay. So this story here, wife is making a million to $2 million and there weren't really a lot of assets to split. Right. It was really just, it was the husband saying I should get, be getting a fair amount of money every month based on your income. And yes. she said, no, I'm only going to do what, two grand a month. Is she making a couple million bucks a year? Right. What was that? Was that based on child support or was that based on that just was, spouse? That was going to be all in. Wow. That's aggressive. It's did very she, aggressive. Did, did she but you know what? When gender roles are reversed, we see this all the time. The husband who is making the big money, who holds the purse strings is saying, ha, I'm not going to give you hardly anything in support. Uh, too bad. Go get a job. Mm. Fair, we see it maybe all the fair time. Fair point. Yeah, maybe fair point. So it was really interesting to have the roles reversed here. The well, so what happened there? You had to prove that we're essentially. How could we not have any money? And you said, well, the the the, the spout the husband essentially said, well, we've either spent it or we've lost it in investments. And she said, prove it. Yes. 
which sounds ridiculous, right? Because they had been in the course of the divorce had been saying, well, you're saying he was stealing money. Can you be more specific? Or, and the answer was no, we can't be more specific. So I went in and basically what I did was for the last three years, I looked at all the money that she made that came into the house. And then I was able to document every bit of spending, all the money that was going out of the house. So we could see there was the purchase of the house. None of this money was unaccounted for. Is wow. the bottom line. Okay, so what about, is, is there any sort of ironclad way to ensure that your, your, your partner's not hiding anything? Or is it really just about communication and trust, except when you're starting to get divorced, the communication and trust goes away? The best way that you can protect yourself is by keeping an eye on things on an ongoing basis. So be informed every single month. Take a look at those statements keep an eye on it. You know, I have tips and techniques for what you want to look for every month and things like that. And if you are staying informed and your spouse knows you're staying informed, it's less likely that they're going to do something. It's those scenarios where someone is not participating at all in the financial process. Totally the person, head in the sand. Right. And the person holding the purse strings knows this and knows, gosh, I can do whatever I want. My spouse is never going to know about what have done divorce money guide you this is something that you've uh, you've written are there tell us give us a little bit of a preview on the divorce money guide and some of the things that you're walking through for folks the divorce money guide is an online handbook for people who are in the process of divorce it is very heavily video based it's in got, the process in the process of so once you're like thinking okay thinking about it Actually, okay. if you're thinking about it, if you like, let's say you have concerns about the money, you're in the decision process. I don't know if I want to stay with my spouse or not, but if that money issue is a big deal for you and it might help sway that decision one way or another, and you want to become informed about your finances, certainly the divorce money guide is going to help you with that. So videos, written materials, worksheets, checklists that basically walk you through the process of what's going to go on in the financial part of your divorce. What financial documents do you need for this divorce process? How do you get them? And what do you look for in them once you have them? And what you're looking for is, A, to get an understanding of how your money was spent, but then B, as you're learning how your money was spent, how to identify transactions or hints that there has been money that's disappearing. Yeah, again, I, to, I, you would think a lot of American families, you would think they talk about, hey, here's what I have in retirement and here's what you have in retirement. But the reality here, and I think it would, the reality here is that just not everybody talks about money. In fact, it's probably maybe the exception. The happy retiree talks about money, but there's there's not as many happy retirees as we'd like, right? And you And you have families that just don't want to talk about money. It's a tough subject. And it seems like it gets to be really uncomfortable if one, one of the spouses is trying to siphon money somewhere else off to some sort of duffel bag. Well, it can get really uncomfortable, especially if you have always in your marriage had a division of duties where one spouse took care of the money and not a lot of questions were asked. This is very typical. So I work a lot with women. I see a lot of them come to me feeling ashamed because they weren't actively involved with the money. And now they're in a position of being concerned that some money has been siphoned off or hidden. And I tell them there's nothing to be ashamed about. This is how most marriages work, where one spouse takes care of the money. And you don't have to be ashamed. 
the point is that we want to get information now. And if you are in a marriage where your spouse has been holding all the information and controlling all the money and you want to change that because you want information, I suggest doing things like saying, hey, I'm concerned. What if something happened to you? What if you got into a car accident and you're in a coma? What if you unexpectedly died? I don't know where our money is. I don't know what's on automatic payments. I don't know how much we've got in the accounts. I want to get an understanding of what's going on with our money and where it is so that I wouldn't have to worry about that issue as I am, you know, in the hospital with you or grieving your death. You know, it's fun. It, it is a tip and a, it's a guy. It's probably, that's one of your steps in the divorce money guide, but it's normal best practice that we should all be asking anyway. Right. Right. If my wife asked me that today, I'd be like, oh my God, you're thinking about getting divorced and you just listened to Tracy Conan. But if, if I, if we hadn't done this interview today, I would say, you know, look, I, the, about a month ago, I got hit in the head with a speaker doing a speaking event, right? I was at a, I was doing, I was at a podium and this it was outside and it blew over and it, it didn't obviously didn't kill me. I'm fine, but I had a concussion. It could have, if I'd been maybe like t three feet further away, the momentum would have been really bad. Wes, but I, I want you to know that you're going to have a whole bunch of attorneys calling you now. Don't you know that? <laughs> I already got, I got, I, I got a free dinner out of it and they actually, they paid for a big chunk of the event. They, they were freaked out about it. Yeah, the venue was pretty freaked out and they were real. They called me like 18 times. One time I was in the ER. I was like, actually, I'm getting a cat scan on my head that, that freaked him out even more. I got a free dinner out of it. Wow. Order anything you want. I was like, y'all get, I want the seafood tower. Right. Uh, I want the seafood tower. Anyway, the my point here is that that's the right question that that any spouse should be asking. It's like, hey, well, I want to make sure where where are the main bank accounts, and then that's a great question. Uh, is hey, where are all the auto payments? Because everything is so crazy automated that I almost don't even think about it anymore because it's been on auto for so long. Let alone a spouse, and in an automated world it's easy to kind of lose track of a lot of different things payment wise. And then that's a disaster if something happens to one of the spouses. Well, I've, you know, had people say, I, I, I did the song and dance with my spouse and said, I, I want to know where our money is. I want to make sure that the mortgage can be paid. And the response has been, don't worry about it. It's all on auto pay. Well, guess what? At some point the money runs out, even if it is on auto pay. Yeah. So I still need to know. <laughs> and, right. and of course, I don't want to discount that there are family situations, maybe abusive situations where one spouse would not even be able to ask a question like this, would not even be able to suggest I need information because it could put them at risk or at danger. I understand that. I'm not, I don't want to minimize that. This is simply one technique that I know in many relationships is possible to ask and use. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. You're right. There are marriages where that's almost a, an unsafe issue and they're probably off better, better off getting a divorce and then bringing somebody like you in so that they don't have to deal with that conflict. And I guess that's right. another way to look at this, right? If you don't want to deal with a conflict, you end up getting divorced. We could always know you could bring someone like you, Tracy, in that's forensic that can make sure that everything's accounted for. You have a story about someone paying for school for someone. I wanted to hear about that. If someone was paying for some sort of graduate type school or. I don't have a lot of details. So it is someone who <laughs> used the divorce money guide to go through their finances. And the short of it was 
um, the husband had a secret bank account that the wife didn't know about and was uh, taking part of the paychecks every month and putting them in the secret bank account. So enough was going into their main checking account that she never would have noticed, never got Uh suspicious. We ended up finding, she ended up finding out that part of his paycheck was going into this secret account. When she finally got access to that secret account through the divorce process, what we saw were um, like cash app type of payments on a repeating basis. And when we got down to the bottom of it, you know, it was $500 and $1,000 going to his girlfriend at a time. And then, you know, the wife found out she was in nursing school and she said, oh gosh, so I, I was, my husband was paying for her to go to nursing school. <laughs> All right. So what about second marriages, Tracy? What about second marriages? Please tell me you don't have clients that have come back a second time and needing to figure out forensics. I have never had repeat clients on the divorce side, but now that you said that, maybe that's a goal I should have before the end of my career. Second marriages do get really interesting though, especially if you both have children of your own and you want to uh, protect them financially. There are interesting issues. You know, you might... um, want to give your child a car when they become of the age of driving and your new spouse may say, Hey, I don't want my kids to have a car. I want them to earn their own car. Really interesting issues, which is why I've put together the marriage money guide to help people address some of these financial issues as they are going into marriage, especially second marriages. I do. So that you have the marriage money guide and then you also have, uh, you have the divorce money guide. And I also so, have the post-divorce money guide. I mean, as long as we're throwing it all out there, we recently released the post-divorce money guide as well. So all those things that you need to do after your divorce is final to protect yourself legally and financially. So we've got 10 steps, you know, again, videos, worksheets, those kinds of things. But I've got a checklist of 30 things that you have to think about doing after your divorce is final. You know, all those things that nobody ever give me, thought give about. Give me a couple examples. I'm very like, interested. Change the beneficiary in your life insurance policies. You don't want your ex-husband or ex-wife getting the life insurance if you pass away tomorrow, right? right. right. Changing, changing your will, you know, double checking whose names are on your um, auto insurance policies. Um, but let me talk about the most important thing, and it is all about locking down your credit. Ooh. So if you had credit cards or loans together, making sure that your name is no longer on accounts, making sure that your ex's name is no longer on accounts that you control. And really my best advice there is closing those credit cards altogether and opening brand new ones in your name only, if that's possible. And there there are certainly some considerations there and it's not always as easy as I make it sound to get new credit cards, but if that's an option, that's the best way. I want to know about marriage and money guide. If If you're a newlywed, what should you be talking about? Give me the same three main things you should be talking about with your fiance well, or new I think, wife. Right. Husband. So the first thing you're going to talk about is how are we going to manage our money? And I give three options, three basic options. Of course, there's all sorts of different things you could do. But if you looked at it on a very basic level, you could combine all your money, manage it all together. You could keep your money completely separate. I've got mine my income and I spend it on my things. You've got your income, you spend it on your things. Or we could do something kind of in the middle where we combine some of our funds, but keep some separate. So it's deciding how you want to do that and how you're going to manage it. Uh, The second big thing to talk about is budgeting, how much we're going to spend on things. 
So those that includes, you know, not only the house and the cars and the groceries, but also our hobbies. How much, how much does that hobby of yours cost so that I know what to be prepared for uh, and so that I can plan my own hobbies accordingly? My, my hobby is gardening, which includes buying seeds and some fertilizer. Your hobby is speedboat racing, like right. maybe a little lopsided. Well, my hobby is, oh, the thing that I spend an obnoxious amount of money on is my hair and my nails. Well, so, I, I haven't seen your nails, but if you're listening to this, hopefully you can, if you're on YouTube, you'd see, you do have awesome hair. So thank you. So it's but I totally spent an obnoxious worth amount of money of it on it. So, <laughs> so, you know, that was something that my spouse had to be prepared for as we were heading into marriage. Um, so the budgeting is really important. Um, and the third big thing, cause you asked for three tips. My third big thing is that we go into this marriage with an agreement that no matter what we've decided about how we're handling our money or how much we're spending on various things, that it can always be discussed again, that no decision is permanent. Because once we get into the marriage and we start you know, managing the money the way we've agreed, we might find out it doesn't work as well for us as we thought it would. Let's come back together and may, and talk about it. I do actually even recommend having like monthly chats about the money so that on a routine basis, we're reassessing, does this still work? I've always wondered about prenuptial agreements and I wonder how helpful are they or do they help when you're going through some sort of divorce? From a financial perspective, it actually is very helpful because what the prenup does is it tells the judge how we intend to separate our finances. So some people say, you know, prenups are bad because it, it, it is like you're preparing to have a divorce. And I say, yeah. no, yeah. no, no, no. A prenup is a contract that says, if God forbid we ever get divorced, here's how we're going to divide the money. And here's what we're going to do with our finances. It is a fantastic way to take control of how things get divided rather than being at the mercy of the court or the yeah. mercy of something that the lawmakers did. Particularly though, I would think maybe Tracy, where you've seen these, they're almost, I don't know of any newlyweds, let's say that are both in their twenties that, that get prenups, right? That doesn't usually happen, but it's typically for second marriages, right? It is a lot of times because again, there might be children involved. We want to protect their interests. We want to uh, make sure that, you know, things go right with the money there. I do think it's more typical to see a prenup when the people getting married are older. I think that's really the the more typical thing because it, you're right, it is different if we're getting married in our early 20s versus if we're getting married in our 40s. And maybe one of the spouses has accumulated a little bit of wealth and the other hasn't. Yeah. Well, and I, I love your point though about God forbid if this happens, we're, we're making these decisions today as opposed to letting some court or judge wrangle around the, these financial decisions in the right. middle of a divorce. So it's already so messy. Well, uh, and, and it's much better to agree on what happens with the money when we're all getting along versus by the time we're all bitter and arguing about everything anyway, then how are we going to agree on anything? What about a red flag? If we were headed into a new marriage, what could be, is it going through your three steps about, they don't want to talk about a budget. They don't want to talk about combining or not like what's a red flag is you're getting married. I would look for things like secrecy about the money because when we're getting married, this should be the time where we're kind of putting all our cards out on the table. Yeah. And I would be worried about someone who has problematic spending patterns. 
Mm, the Fendi bag story, tagging the Fendi bag and then the fancy restaurant that you go to for lunch. I, I, that is a pretty cool story that you figured that out on Instagram. It was fun. And, this, and by the way, that was a couple they never posted together. Never. Like you just knew. Okay. So they were. The wife were knew trying that this was the smart. girlfriend. Yeah. Right. <laughs> trying to be smart, but it didn't work. Not so smart after all. What do you, so tell me about, I'm just, I'm curious about your main amount of time. Is it, uh, is it case by case? When I see CPA, I think taxes, but you're not doing taxes. You're doing these, these are projects that you will do, correct? You're right. I don't do any taxes. I don't do any traditional accounting services. Everything that I do is project-based. My clients are attorneys who come to me on behalf of their clients who are getting divorced or who are running companies that have been defrauded and things of this nature. Earlier this year, I came up with the idea for the money guides because I was looking for an option. I, you know, I would have people call me regarding their divorces who were in a position where they couldn't afford a forensic accountant or it didn't make sense to spend the money on a forensic accountant. And I was frustrated because there was no option for them. There was no product, no guide out there to help them sort out the money. So I said, why don't I build this? And then as I was developing the divorce money guide, I thought, gosh, you know, we could actually head off a lot of problems if people were more informed as they went into marriage about how to talk about money, about those red flags to look for uh, in their marriage to, to figure out if their spouse might be hiding money. And so the whole concept kind of developed from there. So the money guides are really a new thing for me. That's now the product side of my business, uh, but it is a much smaller piece of my business, of course, than the consulting side is. You know, you are the Oprah of forensic accounting. You are, but in a good way, I would say in a good way. You know, Wes, I, one of the things that I want people to understand is I'm not trying to scare everyone. I'm not trying yeah. to get everyone super paranoid about their marriages, about their divorces. And one of the things that I see in these situations is that the spouse who hasn't been in control of the money might have some questions, but then might wonder, well, am I just being paranoid? They don't know how to objectively evaluate what they're seeing. Is this a red flag or is it not? Is it super important, super bad? Is it not? So I created an assessment that people could take. 15 questions. Have you seen this? How does your family manage money? What is the reaction when you say this? They can answer these questions. And the result that they get is my objective assessment of how likely it is that there is financial fraud in their marriage. Oh, so you actually have a questionnaire that'll kind yes. of give a score. Ooh, like a. Yes. The a, red a, flag a, assessment. Ooh, I like that. Where do we find, what website is this on? This is on my website, fraudcoach.com. We can put a link in the show notes to the, the red okay. flag assessment is linked at the very top of the page, but you can find it at fraudcoach.com slash red flag. That, see, that's cool. So fraud coach, you're the ultimate fraud coach. I think I like that better exactly. than the Oprah forensic accounting. And last thing, and this is really what I should have asked you first, but I always ask people their favorite places to go in the world, travel-wise, because travel is a top three hobby for the happy retiree. Uh, and so my question first is, where's your favorite place to travel in Michigan? I've only been to Michigan a couple of times. Wait, where's Marquette? Isn't Marquette Where? in Michigan? Oh, 
Oh, Wes, Marquette University is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There is a city called Marquette, Michigan. It yes, is in the Upper is. Peninsula. You're, so you're not incorrect in that. You're not completely off base. Oh, wait a minute. But hold on, though. Wait, but all these. Wait, so Marquette, the the school is in Marquette, Wisconsin. No, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Marquette University is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Marquette and is in the town. UP of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan yes. as well. So there's yes. two. One's a school and one is a city. Yes. Do we have to edit that whole thing out now? Yeah. But hold on. So here, but, but no, no, actually, because I, I ask everybody what their favorite place to, to travel in Michigan is, because I think it's the most underrated state in in the United States. And people are like, what? Either Why would I go to Michigan? Or they say, I love Michigan. And I'm the, I'm the dumb one here because I thought Marquette was actually in Michigan. It is, but the school is not. Right. So, so that's just educational for our, our listener. Um, how about travel in the world? Where's your favorite place to travel in the world? My favorite city in the entire world, drum roll, Barcelona. Nobody's going to argue with that one. That's a pretty Barcelona good one. is amazing. Have did I, you have you spent a lot of time there or have you just like I've been there a couple of times. I have a goal of living there for a month sometime in the in the next few years. I yeah. just, yeah, I have this plan. I want to go to um, different cities and live in each of them for a month. That's kind of a cool idea, a month at a time, and then maybe pick long-term retirement-wise. No. No? no. You still, where are you now, by the way? Where do you live now? So I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You stayed. You stayed. I did. And and the, the slight accent you had would just be, a, you would call that a, a Midwestern? You know, I think that we have a special accent that goes way back to the Norwegians. If you ever visit Minnesota or Wisconsin, you definitely hear a sort of accent that we get made fun of for a lot. Well, my wife is from Michigan, so she has a, a little bit of a Michigan accent and her sister uh, is like has a really heavy heavy Michigan accent. I don't know how they grew up in the same house or one but um so I'm a big fan of the Midwestern accents. By the way, I did. I lived in Spain for. I did a year. I did a, a semester abroad. I did. A, I, I lived in Seville or Sevilla, in southern Spain for five or four months. Are you fluent in Spanish? No, I literally my kid. One of my kids, my seventh grader, the other day asked me, like, "What did you study?" I was like, "Well, it's pretty just." Spanish. And he goes, well, why isn't your Spanish better? And I was like, because I didn't really study all that much when I was there. <laughs> that is the, the, the prototypical. I even went to the Universidad de Sevilla and I still, my Spanish, listen, my Spanish got to be pretty okay. Actually, by the end of the fourth month, if I always think if I would have stayed about eight and I really would have, it would have been close, much closer to fluent. And I didn't live with any, I, I live with guys from Italy and, and America. So I never, I, I left my host family after the first week and I ended up living, getting these roommates from Italy and the United States and it didn't, and it just killed my Spanish. So. Wow. You didn't follow protocol. No, I left my Spanish family after one week. So <laughs> And I answered an ad that was in the, the, the university from a couple of guys looking for a roommate. And I was like, these guys are so fun. And they thought I was great from America. And it it was a real hit on my Spanish, but it was still fun. Tracy Conan, thank you so much for this. 
Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information.